0: Welcome, welcome and bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy, and I'm looking for the three puppies that escaped from grandfather's place last night.
1: And I'm AJ, and I'm rummaging through your bag whilst you're in with the doctor.
0: Did you find anything interesting?
1: (laughs) Yes, but you'll have to pay me a tenner not to share it on the podcast.
0: Oh, wow, gosh.
1: I sound so savage, don't I?
0: (laughs) You did. (laughs) I'm nervous now. So, this is our first episode proper. I don't know whether you used to watch the quiz show Going for Gold with Henry Kelly. You're probably too young. But (laughs) he used to always say... We're into the first round proper, (laughs) and this is what this episode is. It's after the initial intro, this is when we start.
1: I thought it would be really great if we started with a bit of kind of origin story about the show, like how did it come to be
0: created? So I just wanted to say a few words about the producer and creator, Jerry Glaister. He doesn't get a creator credit, though. You've probably noticed that in the credits, or rather not seen it in the credits, AJ. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's because he came up with the idea for Secret Army whilst on BBC property. And the head of series at the time, Ronnie Marsh, was taking a bureaucratic, bit of a naughty, Jobsworth decision. And because he effectively came up with it whilst going up and down in lifts in BBC TV Centre, Jerry wasn't given a creator credit because it was on BBC time. But that doesn't follow for lots of other shows. I think it was a cost-cutting measure so they didn't have to pay him a creator credit. So... Yeah, there are a lot of deals and issues behind the scenes with who gets creator credits for series. If we ever get onto Tenko, the issue with the creator credit on that show is, is a similar tale.
1: And is that something that Jerry Glaster would have contested or just kind of said it is what it is, I can't change it? Or
0: He lived with that fury for all of his, the rest of his life.
1: Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> so when I met him... In 2003, when he was quite elderly, he was early 90s, but he was quite sprightly. But I did meet him, and he was a lovely, genial little chap, very small, but incredibly um, agile-minded, and you could see he had that sparkle in his eye. And he was still really furious with Ronnie Marsh for not letting him have that creator credit, particularly as what did happen was that someone was giving a, given a consultant credit on the series. And that person was Wilfred Greterix. Now, this was also behind-the-scenes shenanigans because he wrote the original episode one. So many months before Lisa Codename Yvette, there was an episode called Homing Pigeon, which is episode one. Gosh. So do you want to know about homing pigeons?
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether I missed this when I read your book or read it and forgot about it, but I um, saw it on our episode notes and was like, huh.
0: <laughs> so I wrote about this and forgot about it. So, so don't feel <laughs> too bad. I actually wrote the synopsis for this. So I found it at the Written Archive Centre and I was like, oh my God, this is gold. And this is the original episode one. The difference is between this and Lisa Codename Yvette is that it focuses more on the evader's story, and particularly the story of one particular evader, Aved- who in real life is called Bill Randall. Now, Bill Randall went down the line, and his guide was André de Jong, codename Didi. So, Lisa, codename Evette, um, André de Jong, André, codename Didi. And she took him down the line to Biarritz over the Pyrenees. And he it was a, a really exciting story. There was lots going on along the route. He got, um, he got hidden in a monastery by a monk at one point and things that get picked up in Secret Army. And anyway, um, to cut a long story short, by the time that um, the script was prepared, it was felt it was too much about this evasion story. Also, the script was too long. It was kind of like 90 minutes. So it was too long for an opener. And we didn't get to meet any of the regulars other than briefly, you got to meet Albert and Monique and you got to meet, obviously, Lisa because she was taking him down the line. But yes, it was too much about the evaders. So they decided, we're actually, we need to start again, completely from scratch. But the BBC were really nervous because Wilfred Greterix had been asked to write this script. Um, so they said, well, look, what we'll do is we'll give him a consultant credit just to make up for the fact that he's he's not going to be having episodes in the series. But then Jerry Glaister was like, but I'm furious because I'm not even giving a creator credit and this person's getting a consultant credit. So yes, there was a lot of behind the scenes tension and fury before we'd even got started on Secret Army. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And I feel like most people listening would probably already know this anyway, but um, Jerry Glaister, of course, was a pilot in World War II. yeah. And had also, well, you might be touching upon this. I might be jumping no, ahead. No, in no, no, But was was he also the creator for Colditz?
0: Yes, he created Colditz. He also created um, the Brothers. So Colditz is about um, its Second World War imprisonment, based at Colditz Castle. But it's about the, the British heroes who, you know, and, but but what's interesting about that series, and you've got seeds of Secret Army in it, is that you've got a camp commandant who is likeable. He's a good German. And he is played by Bernard Hepton. So, yeah, there's a through line through from that. The other really important series he did was called The Brothers, which was hugely addictive family-based business drama in the 70s. Doctor Who fans will know it because Colin Baker came in as the evil villain Paul Maroney from about series four or five, something like that. But um, it was showing the, sh- the changing face of UK business. It was very soapy, but it was huge. It was a Sunday night hit. So he had those two hits behind him. I think Colditz was nominated for a BAFTA. And then he had a really unpopular series called Oil Strike North. And by the sounds of it, I can understand why. It's about oil rigs on the North Sea. Who cares? I don't. Um, and then he was asked have you got any other ideas and he's like well yeah I do actually I've read a lot about evasion lines and the work of people who help people um, escape allied aircrew escape from the Germans during the second world war yes
1: I think that's just such an interesting creation story you can see he's already had a lot of success and he's coming up with new ideas and is reading a lot about history and still feeling there's stories that haven't been told yet which is great
0: yeah I've got a question for you. Do you know the working titles for Secret Army?
1: Oh, is it The Secret Army? Is this going to be a complaint about the that drives you nuts?
0: <laughs> yeah, it really does annoy me because on the scripts, I've got scripts from series two and three. Um, I found them in the garage the other day. I was quite relieved. I was nervous, like, where are they? Because <laughs> I might need to look at them soon for the podcast. But um, yeah, The Secret Army. And this was a the definite article was removed before it went to production but it still crops up all the way into series two and three and it's so annoying and it's like you see it struck through sometimes by people saying it's not called the secret army but it did have another working title do you know what that is
1: oh no i don't
0: yes and that is lifeline
1: oh okay
0: with the hyphen between life and line so yeah so that was the other working title
1: and do you know why they went with secret army in the end
0: I think it just sounded more compelling and interesting, and I think people are interested in the secret, aren't they? So it kind Mm. of, yeah, it's more intriguing. It fitted more with his Hitchcockian vibe that he was wanting to get through the series, the thriller suspense element.
1: I think with um, Lifeline, it could be maybe mistaken for like a medical drama or something almost.
0: Or like a charity appeal (laughs) programme or (laughs)
1: something. Something with Esther Ranson in, maybe. I
0: mm-hmm. know, oh, she wouldn't fit in Secret Army, would you? she? <laughs> no. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and we even toyed with the idea of calling this podcast Lifeline, didn't we? <laughs> we did, we, we yeah. <laughs> Can I read out a little extract from the background to the new series Lifeline, um, written by Jerry Glaister in 76, a year before?
1: Yeah, please do. Please do.
0: The contribution to the war effort made by the men and women who organised the escape lines was incalculable. This was their battle against the enemy who had invaded their country, and like frontline uniformed soldiers, many hundreds died in battle, seized by the Gestapo, the French secret police, or betrayed by collaborators amongst their countrymen. They were tortured, executed, or sent to concentration camps, where many died slow deaths from starvation and constant ill treatment. But always when one was captured, another took their place. These were the people who had provided a lifeline for aircrew who came down in their country. It is their story that this series will tell. So that's a nice background direct from Jerry. You know, it's nice to have his voice in the podcast, I think. It's important. Yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's just so nice to listen to those words.
0: Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. You could tell he was proud of the series when I met him. He was super proud of the series because it was hugely successful. And that was partly because it just grew in popularity, I think, We've, we've talked about how it grows in, in brilliance as it goes on as well. But it was, in the end, essential Saturday night tea time viewing, you know. So, yeah. But it started off on Wednesdays and without a Radio Times cover. <gasps> he was also annoyed about that. <laughs> <laughs> I I remember him taking me to the kitchen and they had a sort of kitchen diner and there proudly on the wall was this cover for Howard's Way, the Radio Times cover for Howard's Way. He's like, but there's not one for Secret Army. And I was like, I know, and it's a terrible shame.
1: Oh, so throughout the whole series, they never got one?
0: No. What?
1: Injustice? I know. I know. Right. Pens to paper. Let's get in touch with the Radio Times. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you could understand maybe if it was launching or something and another show got the cover but surely by the time they hit 20 million someone at radio times would have thought i think they're popular enough now <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes let's 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 do it yeah exactly is it okay if i tell you a bit about john brayson the script editor as well
1: yes yes
0: so john brayson was an award-winning writer he penned the episode tweedle of Colditz, which is a famous episode in which one of the prisoners um, fakes insanity in order to be sent back to England. But then, in the course of faking insanity, he actually goes insane. So it's a terrific, awful story with um, the actor Michael Bryant. But he wrote that. Um, he also um, wrote the two-parter Gone Away, which is the finale to the first series of Cold Less excitingly, he also wrote for Moonbase 3, the Terence Dix space drama, and a few other bits and pieces. But him and... Glacester were mates because of Colditz and Brayson was very much a driving force in Secret Army and his voice was very much part of what would craft the series he he made it a coherent whole all the way through so I think it's important we give him credit.
1: Yeah. And just to um, dive in and add in that there was the behind the scenes documentary, wasn't there?
0: There was. And I think from my, my impression, I think the crew were really pissed off with that behind the scenes crew because they were trying to film the series. And this series was this behind the scenes crew were trying to do all this series about the series. And they're like, this is really hard. Can you stop interviewing us? Can you stop bothering us?
1: But I bring it up just because you can see, uh, I think the first episode is available on YouTube. I've not found the others on YouTube at this time. But you can see John Brayson, you know, chatting with someone about the script and what revisions can be made. So I I do recommend that listeners check that out. It is really interesting.
0: Yeah. If I could just quote from what he says in that as well. um, He says in this behind the scenes documentary, it is a commercial business making television series. We're making them for a large section of the public. We are making something which has to have by that very nature popular appeal. We're not writing for the eggheads. (laughs) So he was very much about, it's got to be popular. It's got to be really hit everyone. Yeah, so that's John Brayson in a nutshell. The last person who I really want to talk about in a slight bit more detail is Bill Randall, if I may. So he was the, he's basically Curtis, kind of, um, because he went down the line, he had all this knowledge. So he was asked to be the technical advisor for the series, which made sense because he could say so much about evasion what it was like the safe houses about the comet line and he'd also was he was the chairman of the RAF escaping society which was something that still existed at that point and also a former chairman fascinatingly of AI9 which was the peacetime version of MI9 so yeah so he had so much knowledge that was was valuable oh just to say by the way that Didi um, so the character on who Yvette was based, actually still lived in Brussels while Secret Army was showing.
1: I never knew that. That's so fascinating.
0: And she, was, she died at the age of 91 in October 2007, so literally just before I wrote this book, which is it's just bizarre. Anyway.
1: Yeah, I know that um, some of the other key members of the line, uh, again, have lasted until uh, a grand old age. There was two Elsies, uh, a mother Elsie and a daughter Elsie, and the daughter Elsie has only recently died last year. Wow, so, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, th- those connections are still there. Just... Yeah,
0: and it reminds you, it's, it's recent history. It really is when yeah. you, you realise people are still around, yeah. Also something else that Bill Randall was very keen to make a big point of, if there was any doubts about this, was whether the series would be set in France or Belgium. And he knew from having been in Belgium and from having been part of AI9 that, and this this is a quote from him, which is, I I hope it's not racist, but it certainly gives his view. Um, There were no French escape routes because they couldn't trust each other. (laughs) All the escape routes that mattered were Belgian. So it's not to say there wasn't French resistance, because we know there was, but in terms of the evasion lines, because they were so easy to be broken apart and discovered, apparently the Belgian character and the Belgian people were were more suited to this work was his opinion. I'm not saying it's my opinion. I love the French. I was there teaching recently. So.
1: <laughs> but I think um, it might speak to you know the the complexity of things that were going on at the time. A lot of the people, a lot of people in both countries, were thinking to the future, to post war. So there was a lot of people already in a lot of different sub factions. It wasn't just everybody united against Nazism, exactly. was it there was it was the more I read about it the less I feel I understand it sometimes because it was so complex
0: yeah that, that's a really good point point. and even like the characters originally we're going to get into individual episodes about the key characters later on because otherwise this episode would be three years long but but for instance Natalie was originally meant to be a very leftist character a very socialist as was Jacques Boll. But they just dropped that because they didn't have the screen time to show it and to make it make any sense. Originally, in series two, Natalie was going to take the line in a leftist direction whilst um, Yvette was in prison. So there's there's something. So, But it's about political, political persuasions and concentrations. In the end, they went the opposite way entirely. And they decided to bring in the communist faction as a, as a threat. But yeah. But jockeying for position for when the war was over was a huge part of the story of the evasion lines, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so
1: um, you could understand why some groups might not trust other groups if that is the background situation of it.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Another thing that's interesting and it's probably worth bringing out at this point is that originally the plans were that their allies in Whitehall, is a phrase I remember in the Writer's Bible, their allies in Whitehall would also feature... But of course they don't. We only get episode one. We get Anthony Ainley as the character Johnson and a few other people. But they're not part of the series. And I think it's a really, in my opinion, I'm really pleased they didn't keep going back to London. I don't know whether you've ever seen Wish Me Luck.
1: Yes. Yeah. Again, I've got you to blame.
0: (laughs) But Wish Me Luck was an LWT series about the SOE women intelligence agents. And they keep going back to London in that, to, to Jane Asher, to the very lovely Jane Asher and Julian Glover.
1: With some amazing hats. If you haven't seen oh, Wish yeah. Me Look, just watch it for Jane Asher's hats, please.
0: Yeah. For the hats alone. Yeah, she doesn't bake any cakes during the series, but she looks gorgeous in her hat. And I would say that it kind of breaks it up that they keep having to go back to, go back to London. It's a bit annoying. It's a bit like um, The Trial of a Time Lord, where they keep going back to the courtroom and you're like, no, can we just watch the story, please? <laughs> <laughs> anyway um yes. And just
1: to um get you to add a bit more information so you mentioned the writer's bible there yeah i don't yeah. think you've explained what that is yet but do no good tell us good more. point
0: good point aj they're always going to keep me right i'm very pleased that is here <laughs> um, yeah the writer's bible was given to all the writers once to be honest, Glacier and Brayson had already decided kind of what was going to happen in series one and confidently a little bit of what was going to happen in series two. But then some key writers were invited um, to try and pitch for scripts for the series based on this Bible which complaint, um, which included information about the key characters, um, the background to the story, quite a lot about evaders and safe houses and and... And roots down the line which were never used, actually. There was loads of information about that in the Writer's Bible. I was thinking, well, it was funny because I kind of ignored all that information. It seems all the scriptwriters did as well (laughs) because it was really quite boring and detailed. And rightly, they realised this is a character-led series. Let's just get into the characters. One of the most important things in that Writer's Bible is it clearly states that the main characters are not the evaders, and it says that capital letters. So it's just making it clear that we're, we're not doing the homing pigeon model, the Wilfred Greterichs model. Um, this, is about the, um, this is about the people who operate at the line.
1: And that's so key, isn't it? Because yeah. in, in our introductory episode, we talked about how you know it was so brilliantly character-driven and it, there was a focus on the women's stories as well because they would have played those key roles in managing the line in the war. And you can just see how that tone has been set here. If it was in the wrong hands, it would be like, you know, Captain Billy, what's his name, <laughs> going down <laughs> exactly. the line. And, and the series would have maybe been on that one of Ada the whole time. Like, mm. so, yeah.
0: I know. And how boring is that? There's one episode which we'll come to, which I think we've already mentioned on the podcast that we don't like, which is that story, basically. And it's like, oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> another important thing in the writer's Bible is mention of a TV series called A Family at War. Have you heard of that?
1: No, that's not the one that's on Jersey, is it? That's Enemy at the Door.
0: That's Enemy at the Door, yes. Okay. (laughs) Of which we shall never speak.
1: Oh, okay. I have it on my to-watch list, but maybe I could take it off.
0: No, I'm just really rude about it. By the second series, it just becomes about potatoes and road mending. (laughs) It's utterly boring by series two. There's a lot good in series one, but all the things that work, it drops them. So I'll just I'll just tell you that. Yeah.
1: Maybe they didn't have a writer's Bible. Maybe that's where they went wrong.
0: Yeah. And they certainly don't have a good enough focus on women. That's the thing that annoys me the most about it. Uh. Anyway, A Family at War was a popular Granada TV drama series created by John Finch. It ran for 52 episodes between 1970 and 1972. And Jerry Glaister directly quotes it in the writer's Bible and says, we would like to try and maintain a background sense of a family at war, but in occupied Europe. These people are living in constant fear and at this time largely without hope. The sense of claustrophobia should hang almost visibly over the whole thing. So a family at war followed the the life of the Ashton family. Um, sometimes at the front, but also at home, mainly at home. And it was that sense of this running drama of these this family that he wanted to put into Secret Army. So that family element, I think, he was openly suggesting that, yeah, we're picking from a family at war. He was showing his references, if you like. So it's it's just worth mentioning that, I think, because it's an important series that influenced Jerry.
1: Do you think the having that writer's Bible helped maintain that consistency throughout the three seasons, despite having a lot of different writers?
0: I would say so. And I imagine... I don't know of a, of a writer's Bible for series two and three, but I imagine there was one because they had such a good hold on the series. I also think that they were determined that whenever there was a question that a call would be put through to to Jerry or at least to John. So they were very much in control. They were effectively showrunners. I mean, Jerry was the showrunner. They didn't call them showrunners then, but definitely this idea that, that you can't just make this stuff up because it's authentic historical reality, a lot of it, but also the fact that they, they just wanted to make sure the creative vision was, was maintained. So... I think they had a very good hold of the show. And, yeah, anything that didn't work, they were just like that. I think they were quite brutal, you know? (laughs) But, yeah, I think they were right to be. Yes. To your point, Brayson was saying writers should have the freedom to bring their own ideas and creativity to the table... But he and Glaster already had a very firm ideas about the narrative boundaries of the series, and the, their hold on the, the content and direction wouldn't slacken. Yes, writers would be rarely commissioned for a script for which the premise had not already been drafted by the production team, which, yes. I'm actually just reading from my book at that point. Um, I knew there was something in there about that and how they had that hold, so, yeah. Um, available from all good bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> well... Actually, no, just buy it from Classic TV Press.
1: <laughs> so aside from uh, Jerry Glaster and John Brayson and Bill Randall, who else do you think is the driving force behind setting up the show to make it what it is?
0: Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to mention another man. It's quite depressing, isn't it? Um, we will get on to Judy Neem shortly, so that's a good thing. We have got a woman in there. Um, Austin Ruddy, who designed most of Secret Army Series 1, he was responsible for the Condide and all the other sets that we come to know, the back, you know, the back room as well, as well as the main cafe. But also, you know, the Colbert House, and Dr. Keldman's surgery, you know, all of that. But there's a gorgeous story. I still remember when I received the email and I couldn't believe it um, from Austin. And it was basically photographs of the original Condide in Brussels because he had gone out They scouted, looked for something that could still be like the Conde from the nineteen forties that might still have been unchanged. So they went around Brussels, they looked around, and eventually they found this perfect place run by by this little old couple, who honestly, if that's not Albert and Monique when they're sort of like in their nineties, I don't know who they are. It's just incredible how much I feel like they look like them. It's just terrifying. But um, if you're just looking at those pictures, you can see that basically what they did was they just literally, completely took the whole Condeed, took, took the whole cafe, and transported it back to London. And they paid this old couple who were about to sell up for all of their furniture. Their wood panels, the shove board, the boiler, the chairs, the tables. They're all original from a cafe in Brussels. Which is just amazing. The cafe was in the in the no, it was the Cafe de la Chaussee. That's what it was called. And he felt it oozed atmosphere and must have seen many a story. It also even included the Belgian dart set, which which Albert uses in episode one, which we'll come yeah. to later, won't we? Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. But yeah, for series one, they actually it's the original cafe from. Uh, from a back street in Brussels. But also they did find a cafe called Le Condide. So maybe at that point, that's why they got the idea of calling it Le Condide. Now then, question for you.
1: Oh gosh.
0: Is it, is it called Cafe Condide, Le Condide or Le Restaurant Condide? Which of the three is correct?
1: Good question. (laughs) I won't know the correct answer, but in my head I call season one Condide. More Cafe Candide. Yeah, and then series two, three, Restaurant Candide, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, please enlighten me.
0: <laughs> and then I get to even make it more confusing. You have Angela Richards' original album, which was called "Oh, C- Oh Cafe Candide." So from oh, right, the Candide, yeah. even though even though the songs are mainly in series two and three. So the answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's all of them oh and none of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, because they keep changing their mind. Because even the um the condeed that even the condeed that is in series one is sometimes called the cafe condeed and sometimes the restaurant condeed. Ah. Uh, so yes.
1: What outrageous
0: So they have they can't decide, basically. Which is obviously also why why Angela Richards was confused as well about it. So there you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you think the Candide should be called Le Candide when people talk about it?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Yes, always and forever. Part of
1: me thinks yes, <laughs> but then another part of me thinks it's chatting very quickly. It's just easier to say the Candide.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Now, you've, you've just immediately convinced me. You'll find out we're getting to know each other, I guess, through this, this, this process. And you'll find that you can really quickly convince me of <laughs> things. <laughs> Costume costume and makeup yes. quickly. Yeah. Just because costumes are such an important part of Secret Army, I think. Andrew McKenzie was the costume designer for Series One. And he'd worked previously on, mainly on sitcoms like Are You Being Served, Dick Emery Show, stuff like that. He made this terrible discovery that there are lots of other historical wartime period dramas in production at the same time. So they were actually scratching around for the costumes. They were re- he was really nervous about it. But um, yes, he he did well, I think. But finally we get to a woman. Yay! <laughs> Judy Neem. Does that surname sound familiar to you?
1: Yes, absolutely. Although the first thing that came into mind when you just said that name out loud was it's the same uh, syllable structure as Baby Shark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Judy Neem. Judy yeah. Neame, do, 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 do.
1: <laughs> And that's how you know, listeners, that I work with children.
0: It really is. Um, originally, Judy Clay. She met Christopher Neem on Colditz because he was a regular on Cold it. And she was the, one of the principal makeup artists on Secret Army. I think um, Derry Hawes was the other. But um, the interesting thing about Judy Neem, which I've also sh- already shared on my World Enough in Time podcast, was that she used to date Tom Baker. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. And she actually works on The Hand of Fear. I think that's her only story in, in Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you got her back again, didn't you, for the DVD interviews. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, but it was all a disaster because what happened was it was filmed in pitch darkness by the idiots who put who did the filming and the for the DVD extras. So it was like, it was pointless because they were all plunged into darkness and it was just, it was, it was a big disaster which I've never quite forgiven anyone for. And yeah, not great. Okay. So that that blackness all around them and the fact that they looked really good on the day but they looked terrible on camera because the people doing the camera and the direction were rubbish. I think that's enough on background other than titles and music. I believe you've got some controversial opinions about the opening title sequence.
1: I, I do have some very controversial opinions about them but if you don't mind can I ask about the music first because it's something that has really stayed with people and yeah. people who were um, children when it first aired maybe weren't allowed to watch the show, still remember the theme tune and, mm-hmm. or if they watched it and didn't remember that much, they would always remember the opening music and it's so iconic. Yeah. I think it's one of the best TV show yeah. openers. <laughs> What's it called? Yes. <laughs> What's the proper name for that <laughs> yes. of all time? I think it's...
0: Title theme or opening theme. Y-
1: you hear it and you'll never forget it.
0: Absolutely. And it's called The Wall of Fear. The, the track. By, it was composed by Robert Farnon, but actually it was composed prior to Secret Army. He didn't compose it especially for Secret Army, but he was also responsible for the Colditz march, which was the Colditz theme, so he returned to someone he'd used before. Robert Farnon did rearrange the composition for the series, and it was recorded in May 1977 with 35 musicians so there you go if you ever want to know how many musicians play on the secret army theme music it's 35
1: <laughs> i love that as i said in the last episode i love all of these little facts <laughs>
0: <laughs> and also just to say about that theme music the cast would always talk about their theme music with me because they played it into the studio before they started recording each episode
1: no way yes everyone yes
0: to get them in the mood why right.
1: To get them in the mood.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it was to get the cast in the mood. they play it in. And, like, they still get goosebumps when they hear it because they think, oh, shit, I've got to act now. <laughs> um, you know? So I, I distinctly remember when we did the evening at Le Condé and we played it in. And Angela was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You almost have to shove me onto the stage because it was those same feelings were coming back to her of that expectant, you know... We've got to do this now. We've got to get into it. Aww. And I think that's why it's so well-named, The Wall of Fear, because I think that's what they have to like clamber over as they get into their acting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's just, yeah, it, it's memorable. It captures just the mood, doesn't it, of that, mm. of the situation so well. So yeah. um, my controversial opinions <laughs> come <Yeah>. from the <laughs> visual sequence. Yes. I don't think it's very helpful <laughs> because... <laughs> So picture this, you're starting watching the show for the first time, maybe you don't know, you know, the historical events it depicts. You sit down, you hear an amazing piece of music, which is great you appreciate that, you know, from the, off, from the start. You start a, a, a building that you don't know where it is you go through some more places that you don't know where they are and then you end up at a place that you don't know where it is or what it is and then you start the show. <laughs> And so the first thing I did when I watched it through for the first time was like, okay, I'm going to just look on Wikipedia and just <laughs> find a map. <laughs> where where was this escape line? Like, where did it start? Where did it end? Where did it go through France? And I just felt like the title sequence could have helped me out a bit more there.
0: Yeah. But once you get into the series, it's somehow seeing that journey, that that montage of shots. For me, it doesn't become about the line. It just becomes about that countryside that makes me think of that time, of that nostalgia, even just nostalgia for watching the show in the past. Yeah, it is about the journey of the, you know, it's about the down dam and coming down at the start and then their journey. But I I agree, it's not wonderfully clear. Um, But I still love it.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's still very iconic visuals, but... And this is a strange show to compare it to but if you say think of Game of Thrones of more recent yeah. years yeah. that had a map <laughs> I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying that um, Secret Army needed a map but in terms of the information that that imparted for you know when you were watching Game of Thrones you knew what areas the story was going to focus on each episode you could see different groups of people and their personalities in the visuals and so that always helped keep you on the track of a very complicated story. Yeah. So um, I think it would have cheesy you know if you had a a map superimposed on that journey with a little line going down it would get a bit dad's army wouldn't it probably just little (laughs) arrows going through Europe but yeah
0: but AJ wants to know
1: (laughs) yeah the first thing I had to do was look at was google a map so
0: yeah well I didn't think there was any good maps of the of the line so I recreated one for the book and I did it in word it's 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 amazingly good considering i did it in word freehand oh it's ridiculous the things i've made word do over the years which it shouldn't do funny <laughs> i did also want to say about the person who did the titles his name was alan jeeps and he are you also... gonna
1: say we've got him here today <laughs> <laughs> here he is, alan. <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry alan
0: he also did the opening titles for EastEnders.
1: Oh.
0: Yes. So that's his most famous work. But he also did Colditz as well and Doomwatch. Are we at the episode yet? Are we nearly, I know. Are we nearly there yet?
2: <laughs> you are listening to Down the Line, a secret army podcast.
1: So, Lisa, codename Yvette, let's start with a rundown of the plots. Yeah, let's. Lisa Colbert, codename of it, runs Lifeline, a Brussels-based resistance organisation which helps Allied aircrew to evade capture... Catcher? Evade capture and return home. She is aided by Albert Foire, proprietor of the Café Candide. Not Le Candide. Not, <laughs> not restaurant Candide. Are you
0: having a go at my notes?
1: Café Candide. <laughs> His mistress, Monique Duchamp... And waitress Natalie Chantron. Their already dangerous operations are about to be put under further strain when Sternbahnfuhrer Ludwig Kessler is assigned to the Belgian capital to assist Mayor Brandt with the evasion line problem. Another irritation for Lifeline is the arrival of Flight Lieutenant John Curtis, a former evader who has been sent by London to help coordinate their activities.
0: Beautiful. Boom. Oh, this sounds intriguing. Good stuff. Do you want to know a bit about the writer? Yes. Yes. So every episode we'll cover the writer and the director and the fact that, you know, if we've covered them before, obviously we'll do it very quickly. But this is the first time that we're talking about Willis Hall and the director, Kenneth Ives. So they're both familiar names, aren't they?
1: Are they? I don't know what else Willis Hall has written. But then, as we mentioned last episode, uh, and just a quick reminder for listeners, I am in my 30s, so... (laughs) I'm not as familiar with names as other people might be.
0: And I am old.
1: (laughs) That wasn't how I phrased it. But you do have more life memories than me.
0: But it is also true. Someone said, and they were being very, very kind and clearly blind, but someone said to me today that I looked like I was in my late 30s. And I was like, no, I don't think so, love. But that was nice. That was kind. Yeah.
1: So put me out of my misery. Please tell me what Willis Hall um, has also been known for.
0: Yeah, so he's easily the most accomplished writer to work on this first series of Secret Army. He wrote a very famous play about the armies that were set in Malaya and it was called Disciplines of War but eventually when it went to the West End it became The Long and The Short and The Tall
1: mm.
3: which
0: is a play that is quite famous and it was there was a film as well. Then he worked with keith waterhouse he was his long-term collaborator and he they wrote the novel billy liar which became another successful play and he also did the films whistle down the wind a kind of loving and also billy liar when that was made a film so this was part of british new wave cinema so this was really important so he's a really significant figure for them to get for secret army actually
1: yeah i have heard of whistle down the wind
0: there you go hooray on TV he'd also written comedy, he wrote for Budgie and he, there was a television adaptation of Billy Lyre as well. There was the anthology series Village Hall, there's a brilliant episode with Bernard Hepton where he's playing this really annoying Jobsworth character.
1: Yes, I've seen a clip of that on Twitter and he even in that 30 second clip he was very annoying. Yes,
0: it's really <laughs> worth watching, written by Willis Hall. Um, when it came to Secret Army he was commissioned to write two scripts ori- originally, growing up and A Question of Loyalty. But when Wilfred Greterich's script didn't come up to snuff, they thought, right, Willis Hall is easily our best writer here. We love A Question of Loyalty. We love growing up. Let's give him episode one. Willis Hall was less happy about the situation because he was like, oh, great. I've got to start this whole thing. And I imagine legally he probably wasn't even allowed to read the Homing Pigeon script or at least use any of it. Right. So yeah, so he had to start completely from scratch, which is also, I think, why it leaps from the original plan to start Secret Army in nineteen forty to nineteen forty-two. So yeah, so it's later on in the um, in the war, which is a good job really, because otherwise they would have had problems. That is Willis Hall. Now, and um,
1: oh, sorry, I was just going to jump in and say fans would regard Question of Loyalty as one of the best.
0: Oh, no question, no question. Then he just wrote that effectively for Angela Richards. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Right.
1: Kenneth Ives.
0: Kenneth Ives. <laughs> Let me find Kenneth Ives. Bless him. <laughs> Kenneth Ives, you will have heard of.
1: I was just going to say he passed away not too long ago, didn't he?
0: I think so. Yeah, it sounds right to me.
2: Kenneth Ives was
0: originally an actor. Most, well, not, I was going to say most famously for Doctor Who fans we all know who he is because he played toba one of the dominators in, in Doctor Who but his most important role was as Hawkeye in the BBC production of Last of the Mohicans in 1971 and that was that's really good but it's also you can't watch it really now I mean there's yeah there's blackface you know it's it's really dodgy. It's not good, but it's a really good production, and he's really good in it. Um, but then he moved out of acting into directing, and he'd been directing for three years by the time he was assigned to do Secret Army. He had done the first series of Pole Dark, which is a hugely popular, you know, historical drama from the seventies for the BBC, and he'd also worked on something called Gangsters, which is a gritty underworld drama set in Birmingham. So he had a good pedigree.
1: Did Paul Dark also have uh, Ralph Bates in it?
0: Yes, it did. Yes, he was the he was the baddie, warleggan. Yes.
1: Um He's so good at playing bad guys. He is. He's he's not he?
0: Also, about Kenneth Ives, I think he was married to the late Marty Kane, comedian from the 80s.
1: Kenneth Ives passed away in March last year. So about just just over a year ago now.
0: Right. Okay. So I think they were both safe pairs of hands also the fact that kenneth ives was an actor he would therefore be likely to be an actor director um someone who understood actors and directed them well because he'd been behind the camera too i think they the last thing i wanted to do before we get into actually reviewing the episode we will get there (laughs) hopefully this is interesting to people is that um there was filming for this episode in peterborough at water newton mill You can still go to the big house where Natalie was on the top of the roof. Um,
2: Ah.
0: Yes, you can see it. You can see the big roof. And it's very close to the Neen Valley Railway in Peterborough uh, countryside. And a lot of the railway scenes were filmed there. So, yeah. Yeah. Also, I had a fun day walking around London once and I eventually, eventually found the place in Kensington, which is Dr. Kelderman's surgery. So that's actually not in Brussels. It's in London from episode one as well. And then they went to Brussels and there's quite a lot of in Brussels, but nothing too iconic in episode one. Later episodes, I'll be able to say, oh, that's that in Brussels and that's that. But for this episode, no. Um, yeah. Do you want to ask me what I was doing whilst... While Secret Army was being studio recorded on the 7th of June,
1: 1977. Well, I already know the answer, but oh, dear. <laughs> what was what was little you doing on that day?
0: Yeah, so I was dressed as a soldier made out of red paper. It was the cheapest fancy dress costume you could ever imagine, but this was the 70s. And I was competing in a Silver Jubilee fancy dress competition because it was the day of the big Silver Jubilee street parties all over the country, I was in, Ash- I was in Ashington in the Thumberland um, north of Newcastle and I didn't win. Who won? Um, oh, I don't, I don't remember. Was it, it a worthy right.
1: winner or did you leave feeling like you were cheated out of the prize?
0: You know, I think it was someone dressed as Miss Muffet with a big spider or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the cast were recording... In the studio, they weren't allowed to celebrate the Queen, so I don't know if any of them were royalists, but they didn't have a choice. But the really interesting thing is that they, because Secret Army was an important new drama and it was technically difficult, there were lots of sets, it was one of the few dramas that was allowed to stay at BBC TV Centre in June 77 for the the studio rehearsals and recording that weekend Um, because, yeah, it would have been hard to relocate it lots of other shows were relocated to other BBC TV places including Doctor Who. So Doctor Who went to Birmingham for Horror of Fang Rock which Ah. was a a troubled production but one of the reasons it went to to Birmingham is because it was felt Secret Army was more important than Doctor Who. (gasps) So I just thought I'd put that in there because I think that's a good fact.
1: There's a lot of Doctor Who fans that just nearly toppled off their chairs then.
0: (laughs) I know!
1: Interesting, interesting. I like that Doctor Who story.
0: Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it is. I'm pretty much all out of facts, AJ. I think it's time for us to dive in. You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast.
1: Should we start with our general overall thoughts?
0: Yeah, yeah, please please do, yeah.
1: My summary would be, there is a lot packed into one introductory episode... Doing a you, listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm wiping my forehead and <laughs> phew. <laughs>
0: they are wiping their forehead. I I can confirm.
1: <laughs> but really enjoyable and every rewatch is very rewarding. I, I pick up more things on every rewatch. Yeah, that's my very brief summary.
0: Okay, so my top level summary is it's it's a set of questions actually. My questions are: Were they trying to achieve too much? Who is the lead? And No, they're my two questions. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) You set yourself up there for a really long list of questions. I I did, did and I only
0: had two. Well, they
1: are big questions. So is it trying to achieve too much, do you think?
0: I think yes.
1: I think yes.
0: I think there's a a production uh, meeting, which is part of the the behind-the-scenes drama, which I haven't seen for a long time. By the way, I could not find my DVD of it, otherwise I would have shared it with you straight away. Um, Right, that's it, I'm off. (laughs) But... He was really not happy, Willis Hall, in the production meeting with John Brayson and Terry Glacier, He was like, Oh my god, this is a nightmare. You want me to introduce everyone and also make it a coherent, interesting story? I think it's a it's kind of like the equivalent of the five doctors. You know, you try to do so much. But like you I love can't. that it's
1: just a comparison.
0: <laughs> it's just like this doesn't work. And then also make it the first episode. And also being aware that this is the story that everyone's going to review in the papers as to whether the series is going to be a hit or not. Yeah. I have to say I hate the 70s and 80s or actually any newspapers for all time. The fact that newspaper critics just watch one episode and then decide whether a series is good or not. It really annoys me because the first episode is just it's a tryout really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of,
1: you know, some of the best series of all time find their feet in the first few episodes. So, yeah. Yeah. When I'm trying a new show, I always try and give it into, I don't know, episode four or five to see, to give it a chance.
0: Yeah. And thank God you do, because otherwise you might not watch Secret Army, because to be honest, for me, I'm going to say it right here and now, Secret Army starts with episode five.
1: Oh, oh.
0: Yes.
1: Oh. <laughs> Remind me which one episode five is.
0: That is Second Chance.
1: Oh, yes, yeah.
0: That for me is where Secret Army starts. I mean... Not to say the other four episodes don't exist, but if I was ever giving anyone advice I would say, just get through those first four, then you'll be fine. <laughs>
1: I think yeah. um yeah, totally totally agree with you. I remember feeling bemused when I first watched it because you have a you do I think you do have a cracking introduction, you know, you've got Natalie on the roof, you've got Germans coming in, this family. Yeah. But I was also really bemused because I was like, Okay, they've taken the parents and just left the kids and Natalie's just like they'll be back and walks out and I was just like I'm not not quite I didn't know enough to really you know get behind it
0: and it's it's quite a confusing scene the more because I look I'm looking at it what I love about us doing this together is that we'll look at it in more detail than we previously have yeah I read my review I thought should I read my review from my book I didn't like my review in my book. I probably never will when I read it back. I was like, you didn't pick out half the things you're going to pick out in the episode. But that's a good thing because it means there'll be new content. But it was all very confusing that like there were evaders that were being hidden or who had been nearby had been at the house. But that wasn't really clear that they'd been at the house and that the cutlery was for them, that there was put into the pot. That wasn't obvious.
1: You, the I thought the cutlery was for Natalie.
0: Oh, was it just for Natalie? But I think the Evaders had been at that house as well at some point.
1: Oh, were going to the house?
0: Oh, had been there? Oh, you had see, already, I still he, don't know. and I've, I've watched this forensically.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know. It isn't clear. They they kind of, in a way, needed some of those little um, titles on the bottom of the screen that just goes Psst. We've skipped over to England now. Because <laughs> yeah. I know that they were trying to be clever with their a hey, a hey, it's a training exercise reveal. But actually it was just confusing because...
0: Yeah. And I wrote in my book, oh, wasn't it clever? I watched it again this time. I was like, no, it wasn't clever. It was silly and it was confusing. And I'm like, I need to know where we are, thank you. And it irritated me this time. So there you go.
1: <laughs> when I first watched it, I only actually realised when I'm re-watching it for this this podcast episode that they that they weren't all the same men.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've got a question about whether one of the men is another man later on. So there you go. I have the exact same interchangeable men problem.
1: Yes, yeah. What and it's a shame because I think it did have a really quick fix. I thought perhaps it would be more exciting to just have us discover Curtis as the same time that the Lifeline regulars see him. And then to have that reveal of like you've already been down the line. Why, if you come back, what's happening? That would have been more exciting and gripping. And you don't need the scenes where, like, one is very, you know, exposition-y, where they're like, so, John (laughs) Curtis, and then, like, read out his life story in the file. And he's like, one, this is very boringly written, but two, you don't need it. As much as we love Anthony Ainley because he played the master in Doctor Who, we don't don't need any of those scenes. No, I agree. And any point that they were trying to make about how hard it is to be cold hungry easy to get lost in the countryside whatever who you know get bombed out of the sky yeah. and have to go through that they could show in brussels for the in the real life not on a training exercise <laughs> <Yeah>. so
0: <laughs> why i agree totally so good um i'm gonna say something that's gonna surprise you this isn't gonna happen often in this on this podcast no i'm oh, being, sar- I'm being sarcastic it's gonna happen every episode oh okay I like the bit where Natalie did a thing. (laughs) (laughs) In this episode, I like the bit where Natalie looked cold and tired when she came down off the roof. I just thought she looked really like, oh, my God, my life is crazy and I can't deal with this anymore. She was kind of like, ah. And I just thought, but I also thought maybe it was also Juliet Hammond Hill saying I was terrified on that roof. (laughs) And I think she'd only just filmed it anyway. So, yeah.
1: Uh, okay. I was quite impressed with how Natalie would have got out the window and onto the roof. I'm like, did you stand on the (laughs) windowsill and like pull yourself up? I was asking the same
0: questions. I was like...
1: Yeah, so it's funny because I I said, you know, how bemused I was when I first ever saw it. And now now when you go back having watched the whole show and you know the character, I'm like, "She's (laughs) she's on the roof. She must have been really athletic to pull herself up there and get back down. Like... I think uh one thing that I like about Juliet Hammond Hill's performance is when she's talking to the kids on the way out and she's like don't worry they'll come back and it's like yeah you're not you're saying it but you know she's not no. convinced and you can see that in she know you know she knows it's not going to end well here but at the same time she has to be brutal and just no. leave because it's, she's got to keep the line safe keep yeah. herself safe and that's very impactful
0: Also just to say about the girl I recognized her I thought I've written the book on this series, but I, I don't think I ever looked up to see who the girl was. Turns out she played a regular in Grange Hill. She played Judy Preston in Grange Hill. So, yes. Ah, so yeah. she was in it for two years near the start of Grange Hill. I think she was the form captain or something. So she was a bit of a prissy schoolgirl ah, okay. in Grange Hill. But she was one of the regulars at the start.
1: What era of Grange Hill would that be in? Because I feel like my Grange Hill might be different to when that character was. She
0: well. was in there with the greats, with Tucker and, and Trisha and Kathy. She was okay. at the, right at the start. Yeah.
1: Would she have been in that famous Don't Do Drugs song that the
0: cast of Grange Hill? <laughs> no, that, that, was, that was 85. That was much later. Okay. <laughs> Just say no. Don't listen to, don't listen to anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> feel, feel free to cut that <laughs>
1: Some things just yeah. make it through time to any generation, don't they? So um, that's one of them. Another
0: spot. Yes. Just because I have got another person who I notice and I've never noticed before. Berta, Big Berta. I didn't know who she was, but she's only a children's TV legend. Legend. She played Idris the Dragon and Mrs Porty in Thomas the Tank Engine.
1: Oh, OK.
0: So a very loud Welsh... Um, acting part as mrs porty famous and she was also mrs crump in moondial um, and she was also in something called pogle's wood which is even before my time but she was mrs pogle and she was pippin so alwyn griffiths a legend in a tiny role here in in episode <laughs> one anyway
1: Before we move on to other points, just to quickly add to that, you know, introduction of new characters. I was just, one thing I like to do when I watch any show, being the cool person that I am, is do minute counts. So um, they were still introducing new characters. So Dr. Kelderman comes in at about minute 20, minute 21. So you're just going through that episode like, oh, someone else. And I think the main problem is, is when you're new, you don't know who you're going to see again and who you're not. That's the difficult yeah. thing because of that, yeah. like you say, that equal screen
0: time. And and that's why Ryan, when you hear him later on when he talks about how he felt about the first series, he, he was really nervous because he couldn't remember anyone's name. Yeah. He's not great with names anyway, but he was really nervous about well I've seen so many characters and I've heard so many names, I've no idea who everyone is and like yeah. this feels like a test. <laughs> he was so nervous <laughs> so we've stolen this from the new to who podcast if you're listening we we love new to who it doesn't carry on anymore but they had a character a character actually a real person (laughs) called bridget who was a normal person watching doctor who to give their take and we thought we'd borrow that for secret army for down the line um so ryan is providing that function will he stay the course will he go all the way down the line with us (gasps) i don't know
1: we'll have to wait and see
0: yeah exactly um, he only he only watched one episode of The Lotus Eaters before he bailed. So, <laughs> so I'm here with Ryan, who has just watched the first episode of Secret Army for the first time. Mm-hmm. Lisa, code name what do you think of it?
3: It's quite confusing, but then you said to me like you didn't realise that you meet everybody in the first episode. I said that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, right. There's, so this is literally going to be everybody. And yeah, there's a lot of characters. And then you've got obviously the episode is called the, the episode title implies that some people have got code names. Yeah. So I'm assuming most people have code names.
0: So I've, there's a lot of characters. <laughs> it's even more characters. Cause there's code names as yeah. well. Potentially. Did any performance stand out as superior to others?
3: I mean, I feel like Yvette slash Lisa is sort of the linchpin of everything. Mm -hmm. Because we spent the most time with her, or we saw her in the most scenarios. Yeah. So I feel like she's the most developed character from the first episode. Yeah. But I also like the woman behind the bar as well. Monique. Yeah. Because she's spunky spunky yes. <laughs> That's a good word.
0: yeah cool it's, it's a struggle to not tell you too much about the series as it goes on and just you, you to experience it as you as you watch it for the first time, but can you tell from this first episode why it might have the promise of something that is very important to me
3: I'm going to assume that it's lots of strong women sorting out messes
0: of Stupid men. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's my bag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything else that occurred to you or you thought was worth commenting on in the episode?
3: Oh, just things that I got confused about, like being back in the UK without yeah. realizing like the the kind of edit from one place to the other didn't imply that there was any sort of knowing Where we were, which I guess was on purpose Hmm. to think they were in peril and then they weren't, but then it kind of puts you on a bit of a back foot of like going, well, I need to sort of second guess everything.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, final question are you okay to watch another one? Yes. Not not right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course, yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I'm a test subject.: You are a test subject.: <laughs> That's exactly your function.: OK in this podcast right. Thank you, Ryan.
1: One point that Ryan just made there, which I thought was really interesting as well, was, yeah, one person has a code name, but no one else seems to have a code name.
0: Yes, which is odd.
1: I think they do, don't they? They use other names and aliases, but they don't have like a, "oh, this is my other name. They just tend to make up yeah. names as they need them, I think.
0: Yeah, but it really you'd expect at least Natalie to have a code name. I would say. Because she's going down the line all the time. The people who inspired her character certainly did. One of them was Micheline Ugu, who was... Her codename was Michu. So, yeah. Agreed.
1: Another thing that I wanted to say, I think it might even be worth its own feature episode thing, maybe at a later date. So I won't cover it in a lot of detail here, but I was really struck by... Um, I've done a lot of activism in my 20s and 30s, and I was just really struck by the portrayal of disabled people. Oh, yeah. Like through Andre's character. Yeah, yeah. Some of it links back to, um, say, the writer's guides. Uh, We didn't actually cover it on this podcast today, but when we've talked about it before recording, you've said that there will be things in the 1940s, the way that you talk about issues or the language that you use, they wanted to preserve that, didn't they? They didn't want to kind of bring it up to speed to what would be used in the 70s or acceptable in the 70s
0: yeah they they wanted it to be almost shocking and a bit inappropriate because they wanted to make it clear that values were different but it's it's an awkward it's hard watch isn't it and I
1: I just wondered whether that language that they use around Andre like calling her a chronic invalid (laughs) was part of that I don't know whether that was language that would have been used in the 70s or whether you think that would was like Preserved language from the 40s, I don't know.
0: I would love to pretend that it wasn't something... Sure. <laughs> I, I think they were just using bad language and I'm sure that'll come up. I mean, they, they call her a cripple at one point as well, don't they? Which is, you know, not great. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I think we are going to find out, yeah, that Secret Army is a product of its time. And I think even more so when we watch it forensically. I mean, I remember the the first chat we had when we met online was you you mentioned how there's like one almost only perhaps one character of colour maybe even so yeah
1: so tell me what you love about this episode
0: I think the thing I love the most about this episode is well it's two things the first thing is just Monique at the Condide with her public face and her private persona yes And how she's so good at switching between the two in order to be light and fun with the locals. But then also becoming... She does it way better than Lisa does and then realising, well, actually, she's doing something secret and relevant to the war effort on the side. But then also the fact that she's got a third face, which is her relationship with Albert and her long-suffering at the hands of this situation. So she, she... takes on a, a lot of different moods and personas during the episode and I love that.
1: Yeah, and that's what we're all like in real life. We are all different. We've depending on who we're with and who we know and what our relationship is with them. Yeah. And what our situation dictates us to be. And it just captures that so perfectly. Yeah.
0: And and the fact that she's at her end of her tether and I mean she's really quite cruel about André and she says oh she's claiming she's blind now as well as one of her ailments I mean she's really had enough by this point but I like the fact that she is it's is episode one but she's already at breaking point yeah I love the fact that so much has gone before so that you're not having to see that development this is an established menage a trois that's a problem and being presented as that straight away means you don't have to go through the whole uh, you know the whole process of getting there yeah I like that.
1: Yeah, and I thought they did that so well. So um, I put in my show notes, it's exhausting, but not in, and that's not a complaint. It's a, a compliment as to how they make you feel as someone watching. You're just like, what a mess. This is such a mess. These, None of these characters are in a situation where it's easy to stay, but it's also not easy for any of them to leave or they're not able to leave or they are built, You know, the escape line yes. is running from there. And it's, you're just like, <laughs> this is brutal.
0: And the fact that André, I mean, she gets quite a lot of screen time in this episode, but she's not in the series all that much. I think she's only in about five episodes of the series. Sometimes you only hear her. Mm. And it's the the fact that sometimes André is just that physical presence who knocks and bangs. When she's first introduced in the prequel book, it's the noise you hear first before you actually meet André. You hear her banging. So she is as much a noise irritation as she is... A character and a living and breathing human who, you know, has needs. And And
1: what a great, um, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but writing point that is that someone can be so present even when they're not there. Yeah. They're always there overshadowing everything.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: Because she could bang on the floor at any time, couldn't she, and interrupt a scene or interrupt those characters talking, interrupt moments of intimacy.
0: Yeah. And that hangs, she hangs over the first series in that way. Yeah. And you can't critique her for it because, poor thing, it's a terrible situation. But, yeah, it's it's such a relief. It's almost like the sun comes out from the clouds when they go to the, the second Condide in Series 2. And you're like, oh, God. And it's awful that she's died. But at the same time, thank the Lord, we don't have the banging from upstairs anymore. But um, I don't know whether... No, we'll probably come to that later in, the, in, later in our series. But the original plans around... Andre and the original Condide there was a very different ending to the first series originally
1: yeah well I don't know what that would be so hold, hold it for that when we get there oh,
0: I will we'll keep that we'll keep that in there
1: I really loved again we've praised this before but the succinctness of the writing so I was doing my minute counts again Albert and Andre are both introduced in the same scene one minute and ten seconds and you learn so much about them You get such a good introduction to both of those characters, who they are. You see the pull and the push and pull of how they kind of maybe want to treat the other person versus how they feel cracking out of that facade. And you can see it. Albert's battling with that.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: I also really enjoyed the switching between. So I don't know what you call this, but like if you've got handheld camera, would you just call the non handheld camera a static camera? But I really enjoyed the switch between the two.
0: Yeah, and in fact, they've got an extra two hours for this filming, for this handheld camera situation, yes. Because they were so determined to capture this tense, suspenseful scene and the fact that, you know, this was something different. Um, Yes, but what happened was the person who had the skill to do this got ill. So someone was put in who didn't have the skills to do the handheld camera at the last minute to do that job, and it was a big drama and it was a real precedent setting move to get an extra two hours studio time and originally Jerry Glaister refused and said no not happening so then Kenneth Ives was like okay well I'm not directing anymore so Ooh, he, he was move. like yes <laughs> he was furious and then Glaister relented and then this precedent was set and again and on a few other occasions more more studio time was given
1: It pays off. One of my favourite scenes in the whole series is when Natalie comes back to the Candide. You see all those characters, you see how busy it is and, you know, the camera being handheld works so well in that. It's just brilliant.
0: And that's quite revolutionary for 77, I would say. Yeah.
1: And I I didn't really get a sense of it until listening to your interview with Julia Hammond-Hill. She mentioned how dynamic the series was. Mm. And I think that's Help me appreciate that more hearing her say that i've i've come at it with a new lens to view it if that makes sense
0: yeah no that, that does.
1: and i'm seeing it now i wouldn't have necessarily described secret army as that before whereas now i would yeah say there's there's lots of really good points where they switch to handheld camera so you've got when curtis arrives and then goes yeah. into the back room yeah there's a bit where it, the camera's over alan's shoulder as, as he's watching an evader go in yeah yeah Which brings me to my next point. Oh. (laughs) So we've said that it is a bit um, tricky with all of these different characters um, being introduced, but did you notice how they tried to link some of these scenes together? What technique they used?
0: Oh, gosh, no, tell me. I probably will once you tell me, but I'm excited.
1: So you have a a chain that links a, a a bunch of scenes together. So you have an evader... And then Alan sees that Aveda be taken into a building. Alan phones Lisa, and Lisa is in a room with a German, who I forget the name of the character, but he's the one with his dodgy shoulder. Yeah. And then the next scene, he's in an office with Brant, and he's wobbling his shoulder again so you can see that it's the same man. Yeah. And I thought that was a really clever device. In You know, you have got a lot of different scenes and people there, but they yeah. are leapfrogging. Not leapfrogging, but, you know, connecting. There's a connecting thread there. Yeah
0: absolutely so now that's it's, it's a great technique yeah so it's it's following you through and you need it in this first episode because honestly it's hard to follow I think even with that device yeah yeah yeah
1: I'm not saying it solves all the problems no. but it is interesting once you yeah. pick up on it. <laughs> yeah
0: I would also say that one of the things I really love about this episode is how Kessler is introduced yes and that's even before you find out that he's sat in the same room, <laughs> you know, at that point where he turns around and, and you say, oh, my God, there he is. It's because the dialogue, everything that's said about him in advance makes you fear him even before you meet him. You know he's going to be a terrible adversary. And I love that clever way of writing him up through reported speech, usually I hate reported speech because I'm kind of like, can't you just show us rather than tell us? <laughs> but, th- but in this instance, I think it works really well that Kessler is set up in such a way that you think, oh my God, he's going to be a nightmare. And I think perhaps my line of the episode is um, the blood purge at Lichterfeld Barracks could hardly come under the heading of military regulations. And it's the fact that he killed 11 men at the Night of the Long Knives tells you a lot about Kessler, if that is true.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And also later on, I think Curtis gets a line about how um, you should be worried about him. I suggest you take Kessler very seriously, he says. And you're like, oh, oh God, right, we, well, we should. And that's also, I love the fact that it has a double a double purpose. It's to tell the characters, to tell the Lifeline regulars that they should take Kessler seriously, but it's also to tell us as the viewer that we should take him seriously too. Yeah. And I thought that was clever.
1: It's one of my favorite narrative devices is seeing everyone in that world react to the same thing. You see that yeah. the Germans are talking about him, you see the Lifeline regulars talking about him, you know, and it, yeah. it's just, yeah. And you've got that build-up of it until the reveal at the end and yeah. 10 out of 10.
0: <laughs> yes, good work. Um, something else i really picked up on this time which I hadn't noticed Obviously, Kessler is cold and heartless, and he talks about how the family that we meet have been dispatched to the fatherland, where there'll be more use, you know, he doesn't have any interest in these Belgian locals and their lives. He's just like, they're they're basically just produce, they're um, they're just grist to the mill that can be used to further the Third Reich. Um, The Lifeline regulars treat them almost exactly the same as Kessler does. And I was like, oh, my God, because there's a scene in which Albert and Lisa are talking about the family. And all they say is they found nothing. They can't use that safe house anymore. And all they care about is the fact that they can't use the safe house and that they're not implicated. And it's like they don't even have a conversation about the poor family or what will happen to them. Or, you know, that is absolutely. But they're already aware that that is, maybe it's because they're aware it's out of their hands and they can't do anything about it. Or maybe they're, but, you know,
1: already having to harden their hearts at this point for yeah. their efforts. But yeah, you're right. They could have gone back and thought, oh, the parents have been taken for questioning. Let's try and smuggle the kids out and get them with relative, you know, but yeah,
0: they don't. Because in, in episode three, Radishes with Butter, you have Curtis who tries to help um, a Jewish family. But that is Lisa's not going to help at all because she's like, no, that's not what we do. We just help evaders. And they're already at the point where they're kind of professionalised in a cold way that they'll only do so much because otherwise it's too dangerous. And yeah, that makes sense. But it also is a lovely counterpoint that they can be just as cold and stark as Kessler.
1: And we kind of see that a bit, don't we, when um, Curtis goes to the back room And I've put in the show notes it's when shit gets real because (laughs) you've got Albert with a gun, they're taking it really seriously, you know, he's Curtis is trying to put his hands down and they're like, Keep them up, mate.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. You're not out of this yet. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, you then start to hear all these links with places he stayed at and things that happened afterwards and and yeah, with now I watch it and you have such a big deal, don't you, in series three with someone who's been all the way down the line and don't they kill him to avoid him potentially being caught and revealing anything? Yeah. And yet, Curtis yeah, has been exactly. on the way down the line. They just send him back in.
0: I know. This is actually one of my issues with all of Secret Army. And I, I really didn't want to get into it in episode one. Okay, but... we don't have to. <laughs> we, we'll come to that again, I think, later okay. on, when I've got much less to say in episode four.
1: Yes, okay. <laughs> so we'll hold on to that. We'll put yeah. it in our pin board. Good. And we'll yeah, bring it up again and we'll remind him. you when we get to that episode what we've done.
0: Yeah, yeah. Something else I, I really enjoyed was how Secret Army mixes the mundane with big picture stuff. So you have Monique really going on about the stew that she'd made and that Andre hadn't touched it. And she talks about the stew for quite some time. And yet there's this big picture thing going on. It's like, hello, Monique, the stew's not important. But it's the fact that it's happy to be realistic about the ordinary and how the ordinary takes place at the same time as the extraordinary in Secret Army. And I think that's one of its brilliant. Yeah. Um,
1: and how you don't realise how much you're learning when you watch it. I, yeah. I think most people would be aware of, you know, like rationing in the wartime, how difficult it was to get mm. some food stuff. But I think yeah. for me, it just really brought home that day-to-day reality. What I've always said about Secret Army is you can read about what people who worked in escape lines felt or did yet they were tired yet they crossed this river all night or something like that but secret army really gets you to feel it so you're like yeah it's not just that food is short it's that monique queued for that meat for hours
0: (laughs) (laughs) she did bless her heart and
1: she's all you know and and so that's adding to it as well and then you as a viewer are learning right if you want to get this you're queuing a long time for food and then throughout the series it just weaves those little things in you have the yeah. the evaders hiding out in a field but then to me I was like oh okay so they their farming isn't mechanized yet they're not using tractors here they're hmm. doing it with animals you know kind of by hand and, hmm. and I'm just learning all yeah. these really really weird details that to yeah, really, build that world yeah the picture
0: and that's what yeah that local color that detail I think is I think it's particularly in series one actually and I think it's not there so much later on that's just my feeling we'll see but I think they were very keen to get that detail right in the first series particularly
1: I think I think it does carry on I think they're good at showing right good you know you have like in ring of roses you have dr kelderman saying oh even doctors can't get hold of these drugs anymore and okay that kind of thing yeah
0: I'm sure there are loads there's there's an example of me saying something wild and (laughs) generalized and then I, I will I will backtrack very happily what else do we like? One thing I really love is how the British are idiots. And this is a series which isn't about them being heroes and the fact that they're often going to be problematic in terms of their decisions. The Belgians know what they're doing. And this idea that we're going to weld all the lines together is absolutely insane. It's like, OK, let's blow all the lines by connecting them all together and coordinating all their activities. It's like, no, it doesn't work. And I just love that they're just immediately saying, no, we're not doing that. We don't need your help. Go away. <laughs> I just think that's really strong. Yeah. I love that.
1: It conveys really well, doesn't it, how young these, these men are, these, in some cases, teenagers mm. are, that they are just so naive as well. There's one happily tucking into, again, this is another detail that you learn, two weeks worth of, of bacon <laughs> <laughs> rations. And he's just there scoffing the plate down, thinking everything's going to be a jolly not even considering for a second that the family might have called him in because he's put them in a difficult situation.
0: Yes. Yeah, the, the Brits don't come out well of this and I'm, I'm quite happy with that. Quite happy for that to be a situation. <laughs> but it, I find it interesting that, and this is something about series one as a whole, because you've got Curtis in series one only and then the character doesn't return, you've got this idea that, that the British want to help the evasion line, but then it just causes more trouble than it's worth. It doesn't actually help. They can't be welded together. They can't be coordinated and he's just there as a nuisance really he does help a bit occasionally and also yes there's some historical reality to it Airy Neve went out and did this thing as well as an agent for MI9 and was met with just as much hostility and there was issues Mm -hmm. Um, and it feels though it's that it's it's like a meta situation it's not just that Curtis and his help isn't needed in the series, in in the narrative, it also feels like it's not needed in the series. You know what I mean? And it's kind of it doesn't work even in the series, let alone in the in the story. Does that make sense?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: It's a bit like when you've got Harry in Doctor Who season twelve, where you actually don't need him because he's surplus in that situation because tom baker's very physical and he can do the hero bits but it feels like curtis is is like in there for some of that but ultimately we don't need him actually (laughs) so as a character he doesn't really work but yeah my thoughts on that
1: yeah i can i can only nod in agreement gosh (laughs) you said it first (laughs) very minor point there's a bit of symbolism where albert's using the dartboard and misses. Yes. And I always think that when you, you, you get that a lot in television, don't you? Someone is going to take a shot for a piece of paper in a rubbish bin. Whether it goes in or not is usually symbolic to where that character is in that moment. Yeah. So I just noticed that on the dartboard. Yeah,
0: yeah. So should we wrap up by saying what our favourite moment and line was? Of-
1: yes, at the risk of making this episode even longer.
0: <laughs> how, mu- how much are you going to read? <laughs>
1: I'm going to very briefly mention four great lines, moments, but I'm not going to read all of them out, and then I'll pick one. We've got one scene where Kessler is talking with Brandt about how they get information from the family, from the farm. Mm -hmm. We've got Kessler's scene where he's talking about the evasion lines as rats and exterminating the rats and things like that. I really love Monique's one-liner of don't tell me she's gone blind on top of all her other ailments. Great delivery there. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I read that. Down. I read that down
1: too. And then you've just got the, the the kind of setup speech for the whole premise, really, which is when Lisa's being like, "Right, you free evaders. Here's what it means if you get caught. If you uh, here's what it means if we get caught." Mm-hmm. So those were my moments. But then um, I think my line of the week is when Kessler just says, talking about the people at the farm, and he says, "Your methods of questioning, or mine?" And it's oh. just.
0: Really sinister. Oh, gosh. So you went for something much more subtle than than me. I just went for when he shouts, you may not say so, Major (laughs) (laughs) Brandt I just loved his delivery of that. But he's so, because he's such a calm, he's so good as a villain because he's so quiet and calm for so much of the time. But when he loses it, God, you're in trouble. And you may not say so. I thought that was just, brilliant that it was just there at that point you're like oh my god Mario Brandt you need to be careful come on Erwin Ludwig Kessler is someone to be not to be trifled with
1: come on (laughs) Erwin
0: come on Erwin
1: I've um sorry I just remembered something which is the genius of introducing Kessler as a background yeah figure Mm. in his introductory scene yeah which is apparently according to the son of Austin Ruddy Austin Ruddy's idea really that's what Austin Ruddy Jr. has said on Twitter.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting. There you go. Well, he'll have put the desk there for Kessler to sit at at the back, so could be.
1: Beautifully framed. Beautifully framed between the two characters yeah. in the scene. Yeah.
0: There yeah. In the middle. Oh, and there's something else that I forgot to say as well, and that is I really loved the fact that Mark Burns' character, Dieter Gundel, who talks to Brandt, that he...
1: Oh, so he's Dodgy Shoulder Guy. Yes.
0: I've remembered his name. He is being sent to the Russian front. Yes. And the point is, he represents the threat of what Kessler means towards Brandt. So Brandt will be sent to the Russian front, like Gundel, unless he sorts this out. So that's what he's there. But he, I think he's kind of like there, for the great there but for the grace of God goes Brandt. That's why he's there. And I think that's clever.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: I did want to just say something about every time about viewing figures and audience appreciation. Um, This got 6.7 million viewers. So that's not bad for a a new series that doesn't have any um, Radio Times cover.
1: You're never going to let that go.
0: (laughs) I'm I'm really not. I'm really not. You think that William Russell was pissed off about not getting on the cover for Marco Polo. I'm going to be pissed off about this situation with Secret Army forever. But the main problem was it was up against Benny Hill, the Benny Hill show, which was huge and was a Wednesday night staple for ITV. And that's why the viewing figures go up and down for Series 1. Audience appreciation, less important, but the audience research report gave it, um, in terms of people watching it, 69% of... um, It got a score of 69%, rather, which is a strong score. And there's a lot of Doctor Who that gets... 50s and early 60s. So, you know, it's a. I think in the time of. The time I always think of is the William Hartnell era, where most episodes between, like, the Dark Master Plan and the Savages get something between, like, 36 and 52 or something, and nothing ever gets higher than that. So, yeah, this is a strong start. That's all I want to say about audience and viewing figures.
1: We asked people on Twitter to share their thoughts of the episodes.
0: David underscore kitchen underscore Dave K said, the first episode quickly showed that the series wasn't going to pull punches and the good guys weren't going to win every week. The subtle introduction of Kessler is brilliant. Absolutely, Dave. I agree. 100%. Then we heard from Alex Wilcock, who is at Alex Alex Wilcock. Bringing in a significant new person to shake up each side is a fascinating way to introduce everyone by already bringing internal tensions to the fore. Oh. It's a well-crafted prologue, but so different to the rest of the series, giving the initial impression that the British will be the heroes and other professionals, when neither is true. And we kind of alluded to that, didn't we? Two things wrap your attention, twisting those assumptions. Visually, filming in actual Brussels makes such a difference. Fields could be anywhere, then halfway and you see the buildings and go, wow, that's not England, they're really going for it! Exclamation mark. The other is that after all this training... Of others, you expect Curses to be really good at this and welcomed as the saviour and leader. But he's the amateur and they nearly shoot him on the spot when he comes to... He's written a look on deed here. Well done, Alex. And, and he can't prove himself. Exactly! Brilliant point. Even though he's going to stay, it feels like they will. And what a great shock ending that would be to someone built up as a regular. Yeah, it would have been good if they'd killed him there then. I mean, sorry, that's harsh, isn't it? But it would have been strong.
1: Well, that's what they did in Torchwood, isn't it? They, they had in all of the promos yeah. that it was going to be this set of characters. Yeah. And then they just killed one of them off in the first episode. And she kind of guessed it a, a little bit sporadically, yeah. but essentially was dead and gone. And they,
0: and they did with that with Freema Achaemen when they did the rebooted version of Survivors as well. She dies in the first episode.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And then he said, there'll be stings in the tail that aren't fake outs, which is one reason why the real start of the series feels like next week. Oh, Alex, please keep tweeting at us. Your insights are fantastic. Then we had Jalapaya who said, and he's at Jalapaya, very good series opener. A fairly large number of characters were effectively introduced. We saw the German characters were going to be portrayed with depth equivalent to that of the Allies. Solid exposition of historical background was provided for those needed it. needing it. Top writing. Thank you, Jalapaya. You can contact Andy and AJ by emailing secretarmypod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow secretarmypod on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I was going to add in a bit about historical reality, but I think this episode has been long enough. There's loads of stuff online about Andre de Jong and the Comet line. And we've talked a bit about MI9 and... Airy Neve, um, and the Night of the Long Knives at the Lichterfeld Barracks. Again, you'd find loads of stuff on Wikipedia about that. But that was the operation that um, Kessler was said to be part of. When he was part of the muscle of the SS, this is an interesting change for Kessler. We're already getting background to him that he was part of the muscle that did the, the murdering. And this is him being elevated up through from being a junior person to someone who was actually making decisions. Yeah, and that's an important change in his horrific career so i think we made it
1: i think we did
0: and if you felt this episode was too long for you we just wanted to get that background in we wanted to say a bit about the creator and the script editor etc so the episodes will not be this long in future hopefully we'll see you next time when we go down the line when we take a look at sergeant on the run i have been andy
1: and i have been aj bye
2: bye My name is Payam, an Iranian voice artist. I'm definitely a big fan, I guess in my own sort of way, because it's how I connect with the series and the characters and everything. For example, I, I don't remember, I don't even remember specific storylines. I remember the whole thing, the voices, the characters, music still ringing in my ears. I remember the titles, you know, it's entangled with my uh, teen, teen years, I guess, I'm like 10, 12 13. In Iran, when we dub specifically series, there's a voice artist announcing the titles. So it's like Secret Army, written by blah, blah, created by blah, blah. I used to imitate that voice. And uh, it was one of the reasons I got interested into dubbing and then became a dubbing artist. For the national, national uh, radio and television in Iran for many years, for 10 years or so, I became a voice artist and I voiced many English actors and U.S. actors. When Secret Army was on, on uh, Iranian national telly, I used to do this in family gathering. Da-da, da 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 Hepton. This is the titles, this is the, you know, and everyone went like, oh, wow, you know, you do it nicely. I think Iran-Iraq war was um, probably still the longest war, longest war in, in modern history. It went on for eight years, 1980 till 1988 i think secret army was on i think right after the vibe in iran was like after war dark you know that what i remember was like you know stuff was rationed food was rationed so secret army was like story of resistance um that's why it's, i guess it's touched on so many people's lives and we have like superstars you know some voices are more famous than the actual actors and the guy who voiced Bernard Hepton, Albert, he was the dubbing director. He was one of the key names in dubbing dubbing history. It was so nicely mise-en-scene and everything, you know, i thinking about it now, like lots of emotions, it's like so beautifully done. All those like interiors and this, you know, cafe wooden space, darkness, all of that it was, it was amazing, the acting was amazing. And I think these guys did it justice and I think it's full of emotions. You know, you watch it, and there's those voices. You, you just feel they're speaking Persian. Censorship got worse after the revolution, and dubbing was used as a tool of censorship. So there was an editor who worked with the translator to change the story and make it suitable for the TV, international TV. Not always, but they had to. You know, you, there is a sort of a kissing scene or there is, this, you know, some sort of a, a scene that is not suitable again. So you have to, when you take it out, you have to make the story somehow make sense. So they did all of that. People in the industry hated it, didn't want to do that, you wouldn't work, you know, because everything was uh, controlled by the government. You know, even a simple hugging or things like that were taken out. A couple of characters that I never forget, Kessler was voiced by someone who I worked with a lot later on. He actually gave me my break. And later on, you know, the, the, the remains of the day, he was the dubbing director and he cast me for uh, Anthony Hopkins. So he's like a real maestro and he voiced Kessler. Sort of, everyone hated that character. And part of the reason that really worked was his voice, I think, and it's still, after many years, when his name is mentioned, everyone goes, Kessler's voice, because he, he did it so beautifully. And uh, the other one was, the character was Dietrich Reinhardt. So the, the voicing had been done by a really um, famous voice artist who voiced um, Spartacus. And he sounded like this. He's, he sounded amazing. And I remember the line with me someone asks him, you know, what's your name or nice to meet you. And he says, Dietrich Reinhardt. That line is in my head with that voice.